From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in, goodness, very gory Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, it's a third-party postmortem with Hunter Bond and Mike Ducarm, writers on, writers on the recently released Zelda II alike, Infernax. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Welcome, guys. Let's see. I'll get... Give myself a C. <laughs> oh, on that intro? Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, Hunter, Mike, you don't know this, but Ellen has been grading the intros lately. Yeah. And uh, is okay. is a little too hard on herself, I think. Agreed. <laughs> but C's get degrees, right? So that's not a fail by any means, right? You Absolutely. Like... There you that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get into the meat of the the program, programming note for listeners: we're uh, this is where we have our interview guests, like a normal interview episode, not so special, right? But mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and shame on you for thinking that. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> it's a trick. Um, we're going to be doing a sort of postmortem style format, and we're going to try to do more of these as we go on. But uh, Hunter and Mike agreed to come in and sort of help us uh, kick the tires on this. They've got a lot to say about their recently released game, Infernax. And uh, before, I guess, we start through the outline, let's get a little bit of background on the two of you. Yeah. Um, in whichever order, whoever can get to it first, tell us about yourselves. I'm Mike. I've been at Bridge Studio for about 12 years now. Is it 12 years? Oh, it's 10 years. Sorry, I can't count anymore because I'm an old man. <laughs> but yeah, I started up as the uh, company manager at Berserk, and then I slowly moved up as a coder, and then I moved up as business development and marketing and PR and basically everything that doesn't touch production anymore. I've been in the industry for about, like, what, 15 years? 2007, that's, yeah, 15 years. Yep. Just doing odd jobs here and there. As always, it's always short because I'm the first to talk because Hunter just dropped the ball on me. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you. No, it's because it's a it's an eternal testament to the fact that though Mike talks a lot, I talk more. That's a <laughs> that's our dynamic. Yeah, so I think I'm coming up on closer to four years than three years at Berserk, but I've been helping them uh, run their booth for oof six, maybe seven now. It's like six years at least that so mike and i met through my girlfriend um i was kind of on a sabbatical from working in games at the time but still going to pax because of course once you worked in games long enough because i'm coming up on like 11 or 12 years now all your friends are at pax so i would go Mm -hmm. and help them run their booth uh and that at that point we were promoting just shapes and beats and then uh, the game had actually just come out a couple months before i think it was pax west and they brought me on because like mike said he basically does all non-production work and that meant he was also responsible for social media, PR, marketing, on top of the fact that he's also in charge of biz dev and like <laughs> de facto like keeping stuff on track. So uh, they asked if I'd basically come back to games and take over like part of Mike's like job in that we're like a Venn diagram where he does everything and then I do everything he doesn't do. So I mostly <laughs> focus on marketing and PR traditionally, but for Infernax, Mike had actually written a lot of the script of the the rework that the game did. We'll get into that obviously later, Ooh. but the the script that existed, um, I ended up working on the last version of the updates that made it into the final like game. So that's why we're co-writers on the game, basically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, basically what he does is that he picks up all the balls that I drop. Right. I, I drop a lot of them. Well, yeah. It's a good partnership. Yeah. It's a good system, right? Yeah. We've got job security. It's good. <laughs> it's perfect. Let's start. Yeah, so um, we're, we're this, the format we're trying here with this postmortem, I, I think this is mostly for listeners, but it's, um, is we're going to like ask you a series of questions that like will detail the story of Infranax. Um and as we're asking questions, you know, feel free to go on tangents and stuff. That's, that's, it's all good content. <laughs> we will. Um, <laughs> we always well, good, do. Good, good, good. I expect um, Hunter to say more things because he said he <laughs> talks more. Um, <laughs> he made that promise. Yeah, he made I hope that you didn't promise. have anything else planned today. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. How did you come up with this idea and what made you decide to pursue it until the end? Well, yeah, yeah the idea came up, like, I want to say, like, was 2000. I know it down somewhere. It was like 2010, we okay. wanted to do uh, well. When I say we, I, I was not even a part of that project yet. It was like before my time. It was the two other co-founders wanted to do a side project during the weekend, and they wanted to do a flash pixel game. Mm-hmm. And like 12 years ago, that didn't exist. Like that was before Shovel Knight. That was before all the bigger pixel game indie games. I mean, they were probably in the works. They were not released yet or not even announced yet. So they wanted to just do like a retro pixel game that reminded them of like the games they used to play. Yeah, that's just the earliest concept that we have. Just just that just that game that we made in two well, wait, I want to say two weeks. Is it two yeah, weeks or made, two days? <clears throat> I think the first yeah. first like playable version was two days, then they fleshed it out over two weeks. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about like the way it worked too, right? Like Mike said, so like for the background for people who don't know Berserk Studio super well, we're originally a Flash studio, right? Who worked on like Congregate Newgrounds. Like that's where ah, people okay. knew us from for a long time. And so this side project thing was just sort of like along the lines of all the games they were making, except like this one was more they made it without having a plan for who was going to buy it because back in the day flash games licensing was a big thing where you would you know get sponsored to make a game and that would fund the game development it'd be like a really short dev cycle mm-hmm. they did this one just for fun sort of and then it turned out no one wanted to buy like a super gory zelda 2 castlevania 2 pixelated side-scrolling platformer and so it kind of went on hiatus for a while because they weren't really sure whether they, like it was short enough to be a good flash game but too short to be a game game oh and so it kind of languished there for a while so the original concept was just for fun i was just gonna say that also like back then we didn't have the uh, i don't want to say the technology we didn't have the knowledge to do a console game it was like during uh xbox live arcade and stuff like that like we didn't have a contact like playstation or sony or uh or nintendo or xbox so that would have been you have to release on steam and that was before green light was there was a lot of complications there we could not just like pick up the game and put it on steam so we had to do a lot more work on it so it had to be a flash game unless we found some way to get it up there which we didn't have at this time that's the first surprising thing i'm hearing is how long this game has been cooking yeah well, it hasn't been in the works for 10 years. Like we started like 10 years ago, but yeah. in like whenever we would find a roadblock, we'd put it on the shelf and work on something else because hopes and dreams doesn't feed kids, you know? So <laughs> you have to like, at some point you need to make a game that will feed the rest of the team. So that's what we yeah. did for yeah, 10 years. We would push another small game. Then the studio almost died. We had to make something else. A lot of the road went between the day we launched and the day we started. I feel like we talked about it internally and tried to come up with exactly how much full-time dev went into it, right? And it's somewhere between yeah. like two 
three years, maybe max of fairly dedicated development over the course of that period of time. Yeah. yeah and that's, there's a lot of it that was just trashed work. Like when I say, I, wanna, right. I don't want to say like trash, like garbage work it was like work that we had to can at some point because it was right. something we did eight years ago. It's not good enough anymore because right. we're 10 years in the future. And even though we're making a virtual game, we still need to make it good. <laughs> and if it doesn't look good, like even for retro, like uh, uh, retro aesthetics, even if it's retro, it doesn't matter. It needs to look good. So right. yeah, and the market changed a huge amount over those ten Just, years, right? Yeah. So a little bit, so much. Again, like back then, there was no no pixel games at all out there, um, except for like the original ones. They're like very obscure games. So now, even now, like pixel games are almost too much. There's too many pixel games. Right. I don't want to say there's too many. It is fun having people ask us where they were like, you know, were you concerned about trying to differentiate your game in the market? And we were like, no, because we <laughs> like it was already what it was going to be. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. We were just finishing. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 There's some things you can't help, right? Like you can't help yeah. what's popular when you're finished, you know? Yep. Um, or you can't help, like, maybe you're part of a zeitgeist and you didn't even realize it because you're all influenced by the same things or had the same ideas. That's what happens. It's a sort of, as long as your motivations are pure, you know, you, you can worry about it and maybe you can, people asking you to you know, to question your choices feels a little bit unfair, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it was fine. It was just funny. The part of the answer too, right, is uh, it helps if you don't try and remake games everyone loves. <laughs> like if you just pick two games with really checkered pasts, there's yeah, not yeah. as many people doing that. <laughs> that did serve as a good hook. It is uh, yeah, it's a pixel game, but it's actually got a different influence than you might expect. Um, so you had this playable version way long ago, and then it's kind of just hung around in the background of the company. When what was the point at which you're like, okay, now we're going to drag this out and really finish it or or rather take all the work we've done and and, and start from scratch with all of this as prototype which time <laughs> which, which time yeah which time because we tried to like kick by kick it back on the forefront for like four times mm. and every single time we would hit our next road like roadblock because we like to call it the curse game about a curse because every single time we tried to put it back in dev something terrible would happen to the studio Oh no! <laughs> like because when we first the the first time we tried to like get it back out there was when Kickstarter started. Like there was a couple of, uh, there were a couple of games that were like getting funded there, like the Double Fine game, Shovel Knight, and stuff like that. Were all Kickstarter. We figured like, well, if they can do it, we can also do it. We tried to do the Kickstarter. It took me like four months to do the entire campaign, and in the morning I was supposed to press go. Simon, the president of the company, came back from vacation and told us that, well, this year was closing down except for himself and the tree founders because oh. they had run out of cash like four months before. That. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they had been running on empty. We had like two months left of company pay in the bank, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time we tried to get back Infernax out there. And then three years after that, we tried to do another Kickstarter. And that was like three years later. We they hired me back and we hired a lot of uh, uh, employees back in the company. And we said, uh, well, we should try to do Infradex. It was almost done by now. And well, didn't really work out because the game wouldn't compile anymore. Oh, And we realized that the game was the, the game was a lot bigger than we wanted it to be a lot bigger because it was, again, it was like five years after we started the game. There were now there were those pixel games coming out like Shovel Knight had been out. Uh, messenger was like getting announced and stuff like that and we had to we had people like making games like we wanted to make so we wanted to make it bigger and realized that we didn't have the didn't have the funds to do it so we 
put it back on the back burner. We refunded everybody on Kickstarter that backed us because we did a Kickstarter too. I think we're one of the only people who ever went back and manually refunded all of our backers because we didn't cancel the campaign. So everybody who backed it and didn't like, so only a handful of people didn't want all their money back, but we kept a penny from people. So they'd still back it and gave them all copies of the game when it shifted. Yeah. So like yeah. all those people still, their stuff is still in the game. Like we still have a backer mausoleum and stuff, even though we refunded everybody, it's still in the game. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And yet, oh, that, and that was painful to do because by the time we finally launched the game, we had been like five years after Kickstarter. So we lost the access to all the backers' info. So I had to uh-huh. manually DM everybody their key on the morning <laughs> of launch. That was fun. Yeah. That was so fun. You just checked out for a couple hours. But yeah. yeah, like I got up at six and started doing it. It was fun. But the final the, like the final wave of Infernax, I, I think there's a couple of converging things that brought the studio to like all agree on it. Like one, the structure of the studio is that we have three co-founders. And it's a, I wouldn't say flat hierarchy at all, but everybody's pretty, we work asynchronously. A lot of people are fairly in charge of what they do, but the co-founders tend to like own their projects really like a lot. So when you hear people ask about, because people who know about Just Shapes and Beats are confused about Infranax (laughs) and Infranax actually makes sense if you take Just Shapes and Beats kind of out of the equation, because that's sort of the outlier in our catalog, right? A lot of our games back in the day were very similar and inspired by like Infranax related stuff. But Simon Lash, who he was saying is one of the co-founders, was like the creative director for that. And this was Etienne, who mostly creative directed the projects back in the Flash era, right? But at the time, he was running a game called Zombidal. We had an idle uh, game that was uh, uh, going for a pretty long time. And they did it at like just an insane pace where they were doing content updates every single, well, every two weeks for like... Yes two years wow, wow. Yeah, there was one bat one patch for bugs every two weeks and then one content update every month yeah it was just with a team just a really small team and so when that started winding down uh the coders on that needed something else to do for their sanity at the end needed something else to do the messenger had just come out like pretty recently and you know sabotage is a pretty big like friend of the like friend studios from Quebec City, mm-hmm. and so we all just started talking about it again at one of those holiday breaks in December. Actually, that like we could probably do it, and the timing just worked out. So Etienne agreed, and we sort of dusted it off and slowly because we were you know wind, not winding down just shapes and beats, but we had more time in the, to put into dev on other stuff. Mm-hmm. So like all those things together is why we finally in was it 2018, 2019? I want to say twenty nineteen. I'm yeah. not exactly sure because again I'm an old man and my memory the, is failing me. Well the first major incremental update was Pax Pax West 2019 is when we showed off the new demo which was that the game finally had been ported into Unity for that demo. That was yeah. like the big it, it it had to be 19 because 2020 was the year that yes. nobody talks about Voldemort <laughs> right. year. Yes. So, <laughs> so I yeah. Did, so it had yeah, to be so. yeah we started on two, in 2018 yeah that's right. Right. So we started, but the first one we showed off was that that updated demo into Unity for 2019. So we yeah. showed it at, I think, three shows, at, yeah. like, I think like West, South, and then Final PAX, which yeah. was Pe- PAX East 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was the, that's when we finally brought it out. And then after that, PAX East, basically, obviously, no more cons. So we just went heads down on finishing the game. Mm. And so once you had all that stuff moved over, I mean, so it was it was Flash up until 2019. There was no intermediate XNA <laughs> no. uh, port or anything like that. No, no. Uh, it was in 2000. We ported to Unity in 2015. 
Oh, was it? Like oh, okay. when okay. we when we first did the uh, the Kickstarter and we had to like reboot the game, basically we decided that, well, if it's going to be on console, it might as well be in Unity because ah. you can't really do Flash unless you're Brawlhalla and like you're insane people that decide to do a Flash game that's also online multiplayer. I love those guys, by the way. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah. So but I guess yeah, the, the 2019 was just the updated, like, kind of vertical slice demo that we actually Yeah. Had. Yeah. Because yeah, we had been heads down for like a year in dev and we had the opportunity to go to PAX. Because we, uh, for PAX West, it's kind of hard to get a spot. And we locked out into getting a 20 by 10. And we didn't know what we were going to do with that space. Tech, we just yeah. decided to just, because we would run Shapes and Base with a 20 by 10. But now Shapes and Base was slowly like dying. I don't want to say dying down, but it's like ramping down. Mm-hmm. So we decided yeah, the content just, cycle, we were just like yeah. spacing out our updates more at that point. Yeah. 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 So we just decided to just let's do a Infernax booth in the back. And people didn't even realize we were the same studio. Yeah. That was right. the, the funniest <laughs> part. We were at Shapes and Beats, and then some people will just come ask us, like, where's the dev for this game? Like, yeah, that's, that's us, us too. Yeah, like, we're wearing the shirt. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it makes sense though, because the just shapes and beats booth is designed to like it attracts a crowd, right? Because it's like a arcade multiplayer kind of fun party game, mm-hmm. and the way we always oriented it was where it would be catacornered kind of towards the corner, so people could watch. And then the Infernax booth was I built. Uh, a surround for a flat screen that turned it into a giant CRT. And then we thrifted a couch and a rocking chair and like an old rug <laughs> and just made a living room and we're giving out Capri Suns and like stuff. Wow. So like, if you saw those two booths, they wouldn't seem like they're the same company at yeah, all. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's amazing though. I would love to go to the booth. <laughs> Give it me was a Capri fun. Sun, I had to carry all the stuff for that so yeah. far too. Cause oh, we yeah. like, you, you can't use power tools on the floor right. and oh. we don't live. So I had to go to a hardware store and carry the wood to build our booth. Like, Something like a mile on just like over over yeah. arm, wow. and we had to make it make them cut it there too. Yeah, yeah I dev. was going somewhere. <laughs> I was going somewhere with that. Oh yeah, we had been working on the game for like a year now when that all happened, and we decided to well, if we're gonna do a trade show, we should probably do a slice of the game, like because we had not been working on the first part for a while. So we just decided to just take two months and just polish the hell of the first ten minutes, mm-hmm. and that's how we came up with the demo. Cool. I forgot why I was selling that though. I'm I mean, sure there was a question about it. Was it that the also that led into kind of eventually the final form the game ended up taking? Because that demo is kind of where like the design of the game really yeah. went up with the inclusion okay. of some stuff in the. I think we'll get to it later, so I won't get yeah. too deep. But yeah, well, it seems like that's the point where it be, the game became real at that point. Like it, it had all the different variations, but you have to kind of like make some final choices, and that seemed like that was the well, there- that was. That sounds like it's that bottleneck where it's like, okay, now this is what it is, right? Because we're showing. Well, in very berserk fashion, also, there's a very instrumental thing that was included mostly because Simon thought it would be cool. And he was absolutely right. But that was how the decision making process was is what if we just added this? It, like the last moment while I'm working on the demo oh, right no. before PAX. We're just oh, going to go ahead and. Steven doesn't like hearing that. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm having a. See, the thing though is that. that but but Simon is an amazing coder where it yeah. doesn't really make sense, where you're like, no one could do that. And then he just delivers something. You're like, right, I guess he can do that. Oh, Fair I mean, enough. he did the work? Okay, that's a lot better. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we didn't have to do the work. Okay. He only does it to himself. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, no. He does it over the weekend <laughs> instead of being with his kids or something. Oh, okay. yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. He once designed a bunch of levels for just shapes and beats live at PAX. He wow. like, had a request to show some stuff, and he's like, I got to go. Went back to the hotel room and made an entire content update in a weekend by himself. Goodness, that's very impressive. <laughs> yeah. 
Also scary. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh-huh. He loves his job. Yeah. That's great. That's great. What part of the development process did you enjoy like the most of about with, with respect to this game? And what did you enjoy the least? I mean, for us, we're, we're not really touching anything production side except for sure. writing. So I guess writing. Well, that, well yeah. <laughs> was, I mean, were there difficulties with respect to writing? Was it what, what, what was what was great about it? What was bad about it? You know, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I guess yeah, there were some difficulties with writing. Yeah. No, it, it's so that. What here's here I'm gonna peel back the curtain a little bit for you. Okay. Since the game is as old as it is, right, and it's written the way that it is, we're a pretty dev first studio as far as the way that kind of stuff is, right? Some studios might I don't know like make a tool or make it so that the script is populated from a spreadsheet or something. Um, ours is coded directly in a code editor. I had to write all the lines of code directly into the game okay. um, in code, like in was it C sharp? It's C sharp, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a hybrid of C sharp and uh, JavaScript, uh, not right. JavaScript, just Java. And so we have our like, and the dialogue system's not insane, but the point is, is like I wrote <clears throat> all of the the stuff I wrote into VS Code directly. Ah. So that was a high learning curve for someone who's not a dev, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, also, for the final stretch of it, because the creative director Etienne had like a really specific vision. When I came on to write some additions for the game, Mike, like I said, the base of the game had already been written by Mike at some point. And then also everyone at the studio contributed, yeah. right? But when I came in to do the last pass, which is like probably 40, 50% on top of what we already had, because we added that thing that got added in the demo was the branching narrative. It, originally, oh. it was like a, a linear game. And then we added a, a morality system which creates in the game. I mean, there, it, yeah, the game's tracks. been out, so I can finally just talk about it. There are five unique endings to the game story-wise, right? There are other mm-hmm. endings, but as far as the morality system goes, there's there's five paths you can take. Originally, it was one, so we had to write all the dialogue that, and everything that relates to those other four <laughs> paths. And because Etienne had like a really specific vision, I kept going back and forth with him doing like asynchronous writing and it just didn't work because I just wasn't like able to hit the tone that he was imagining or, mm-hmm. you know, the feedback cycle took too long. So I actually wrote most of the script of the game while live streaming my screen to the creative director on just really long calls. Like we wow. just wrote it live. That's, that's very intense. <clears throat> that's, that's yeah. <laughs> it, but it's what got it done. You know, yeah, like yeah, we yeah. also got a lot, the dialogue got a lot, better than it would I think have been throughout that because like Mike and I both would like write stuff and we'd send it and it would be hard because like an idea would be something that he would actually end up being on board with but it would require like explaining in the moment like well this is why it's why this exactly and he'd be like oh okay cool great sure so that feedback cycle being immediate as intense as it is every games writing friend I've told that to has had like a aneurysm but (laughs) it it worked and the game is better for it and yeah, I think that 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 was hard, right? Because I'm some of those were like ten hour calls, but the end result was worth it. I think you know, okay. like at no yeah. point was it painful. It was just long. It's right. just a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's I do a lot of those calls um, in the work that I do, and it's uh, sometimes there's no other way to do it. And you know, the the quality that you would get is if you did it any other way is just not what you well, want to go for. It helps so. a lot too because of we're you know it, there's not a language barrier but you know Mike is by far like probably the most proficient 
at English or the whole studio because the whole studio is French Canadian. So primarily they speak French when they're not dealing with me or other people. And so like Etienne isn't like, he doesn't use English all the time, right? Because at home he probably doesn't use English almost ever, right, Mike? I don't think yeah. so. Yeah. And I mean, so like- I mean, I'm sure he, he does like uh, Skype warm or stuff or something or right. magic, but I don't think he uses English for that. But I, I might be wrong. Maybe he's like a superstar online, and we don't know. Right, secret superstar. <laughs> but I'm like over, overcoming the nuance of like, because that was originally what I was doing on the script was just rewriting for like mm. idiom and grammar and stuff, and eventually mm. I ended up doing more because it's yeah, and also like the things that the game at first, like ten years ago, it was not a narrative game; it was just a small little platformers. It was a bunch of inside jokes, and then when we started working back on it again, it was mostly Simon doing the text. Like he was live streaming coding, and he was like doing jokes with his chat, is just coding in jokes. And when we picked the game back up and we decided to make it more narrative, Etienne didn't want that. He wanted to like, if I'm gonna tell a story, I want to tell the story I want to say, and that story doesn't involve jokes. So Hunter had to redo the entire script, like remove all the jokes, even though like it pains me every single time because I wrote most of the, most of these jokes. There are a lot of them. jokes that people would have liked. We were, we were joking and maybe one day, right. Since the game was like moderately popular, we might be able to, Etienne wouldn't love it, but it'd be funny to have a, like a director's cut dialogue where we put back in all of the really dumb stuff that we would have absolutely kept in if he hadn't been like, no, it's got a, cause the tone of the game is like moderately serious, right? right the yeah. jokes sort of stand out because it's not slapstick really. Yeah. For the yeah. most part. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, playing it from, from immediately you sense it has a sense of humor, but it's not, it's not trying to make you laugh. Right. Yeah. I think it, we joked about it being kind of like the, you know, the 90s Simpsons where there's like two levels of stuff going on mm -hmm. where like, because Etienne didn't want it to be funny. There are things that are funny for me. Like I like wordplay and things like that, but there's not as much like overt, like direct reference. All right. Cause the direct references that stayed are good. There were a lot more. And I think I've come around to the idea that I think it has the right amount of references, at least in it yeah. now where it's not as many, they're a little more subtle. They're a little more spaced out. It was fun trying to write. Uh, jokes that made it through the approval process. Right? Ah. That sort of like censorship <laughs> yeah. breeds better, yeah, better yeah, jokes. Because yeah. right. the humor is not like it's not like, like you said, it's not in your face. It's like incidental or accidental. It's sure. just always in the back, yeah. like in the back of your mind. Like, oh, this is funny, but it's not supposed to be. Like, oh, there's somebody that has like 42 teeth getting his face smashed in. That's kind of funny, but it's. Not really. <laughs> I think the only time the dialogue really gets like super overtly slapstick, and this was like Etienne was cool with, is the further you get away from really what you should be doing in the storyline, like when you diverge, then it starts to get weird. Because my favorite line I ever wrote is um, only available on one of the five quest lines. Like it's non-essential. You have to find the NPC, and it's <laughs> like the way we we made the game has you know text boxes like an old NES game, and each line can only be like 120 odd characters long, including spaces. So it's, you're basically every line of dialogue is a tweet. Mm. And Etienne didn't want a lot of reading. He's like, games don't have a lot of reading. Like they got to get back to like hitting things. You're like, all right, great. So no interaction is more than like a couple of text boxes generally, like maybe two. Yes, but this two one's dots. like. 45 in a row yeah. and that's like part of the bit and <laughs> i love it very much but like most people will never see it right right at all. right right so that's i mean you sort of outlined a lot of like what changed about about the game from start to finish what a, can you describe the earliest concept of the game it, it, it narratively because you said there wasn't a lot going on but how much of the choice to make it more narrative game was just to 
flesh it out versus how much is it would to just scrap the earlier ideas or change them or what were the biggest changes in that long period? Well, the things that the first you need to understand that what we do at Berserk is that we go where the game wants to go. Like whatever, like we do a new build and then we decide, like, oh, well, this this could be fun. Let's explore it. And we just keep doing that. And that's all that our games evolve usually, which is a very iterative process. Mm-hmm. So the way that it really changes when Simon did that demo and he, we did the morality system there, that was just supposed to be a, a one-off joke to have a, a punch during a demo. And from there, people started like seeing the potential of it. And we just took that the idea of the people told us like, oh, well, if you do this and then this is going to influence the game somewhere else, yeah, sure. That's how it's going to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we just picked that idea and bring it, brought it back home and just worked on for two years on that morality system of re- redoing the entire storyline three times and adding another like a bunch of quests also that would like influence those decisions and stuff. I mean, it definitely went from being what would, you know, like it had the same level of lore as like a Castlevania two, which is to say not a lot in game, right? Mm-hmm. Like in that, yeah, like there are villagers you can talk to and stuff, but they, it wasn't deep. Um, like a good example of exactly how the narrative happened was when we decided to make it a narrative game, the land is called Upel, right? That's the name of the kingdom or I guess the dukedom. I remember having that conversation with Etienne because of course there's no like there wasn't like a game design document for the writing of this. We were just kind of doing it because it was expanding on the game that already existed. And the way we arrived at that is when you jump off the boat at the very beginning of the game, it pops up and the location is named the Shores of Upel. And I was like, Etienne, what's the name of where we are in this game? And he's like, Oh, it doesn't matter. I was like, it does. It's gonna come up <laughs> yeah. in this narrative game. Hmm. And I was like, I guess it's Upel, right? So technically it's always been Upel. Just at one point, they just decided that for no reason. Yeah. And so, like, it didn't, you know, it was a lot of that early NES era, like, throwaway lore, taking yeah. that. And then, like, we kept all of that. The only changes that really got made to the stuff is, like, um, the first castle is called in Valeshire, right? And the original, what's the name of the. It was Mom Hunslayer. Right. Yeah. Because so, like, it's we... the name of the boss in there, but that's the only one. Right. And so like we started changing like location names to make more sense logically where it's like, okay, well, this town is named Darsov. This area is called Valeshire. So the keep inside of it should be called Valeshire Keep. Like, you know, making it just like getting rid of holes and like tying it together. Mm-hmm. We added a lot of stuff, but every single place we could basically keep the original stuff, we absolutely wrote around it to keep right. it in because it was like, what's the point of changing what's already there that works? Right, you kind of engineered that sort of casualness that a lot of those early games had with their lore, is yeah. by, by making sure not to not to polish it too hard. Right, right. It's like the, the early Metal Gears; they had like the NPC that were called like the uh, rocket launcher guy or something like that, and then they worked that guy into the later sw- the, the later one that he's still named Rocket Launcher, and he's in lore named Rocket right. Launcher or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just like. Took the existing lore and just made it work. Yeah. yeah. So really important question then is, do you have a character who is error in this game? <laughs> we used to. Oh, there was. Like, that was one of the yeah. one of the referential things. That it might be the easiest joke the for a Zelda cut. 2 clone, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe it wasn't that hard the, to cut. <laughs> the only one that I wanted that didn't make it into the game, the like referential joke that I really wanted was, and it was a coding issue, it was just too much of a pain to make it work, was I wanted... At any given time, until you activate it, every single table, if you crouch and, and like uh, attack, I wanted it to be like, what's a mirror doing under here? 
but like it, I wanted it to be a state that existed for all tables until you found a table to do it right, so that it was yeah. impossible basically uh, not to find ooh. that one. Didn't make it because it was just too much of a, like too much work to figure out a way right. to, for one throwaway joke. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, I like Zelda too. That's yeah. why I got excited. Is like I only came on towards the tail end of the project, but when Mike when we were at a con and he was talking about Infranax, and he, I was like, "What is Infranax?" And he's like, "Oh, we made a game based on Zelda two. <laughs> like, we made a what? Like, hold on, <laughs> sold. <laughs> yeah. So the game is now in development. You've started showing it off, and uh, so you've you've got players who've got some time with it now. So th th that's not exactly playtesting, but I imagine you did do playtesting. So talk about that process of feedback, and once once it got out, pulled out from the dungeon, and started working on it in the open, in a sense. Uh, how did you handle feedback, playtesting, uh, events? Like, uh, how did that uh, work into your process? Our our demo stayed almost mostly the same through the whole dev process. And mm -hmm. the first version, like the the first part of the game has changed to launch, but it's only because we expanded a couple of specific elements of it. But really the, the first hour experience, which is kind of what the demo has, mm -hmm. is pretty similar to what launched because it was good. Like it was already, it was basically, you know, except for some grace notes, mm -hmm. almost perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Like with yeah. other than some rewrites well, and... Uh, the things that we for the demo we did do a couple of tweaks here and there because we understood that it was going to be a demo that needed to be played for 10 minutes and right. if we would have kept that well people would have probably not even reached the first town so we we upped the xp we upped the goal we mm. added potions and stuff like that actually no we kept the potions and that we had removed from the dev branch just to make it so people would actually like get a bit further in yeah it was but like we made a, part, yeah. a massaged experience right yeah. for the show to start oh interesting so it, the, mostly because it wouldn't be fun in a vacuum, like without yeah. the ability to grind, grind if you want to and like explore more because it was right. kind of a gated playground. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been a fun experience. Okay. Oh, that, vacuum, yeah, right? I, I get that. Yeah, Because we wanted to have like that because normally for them, what we try to do is that we try to take a not the first part, but it's a part that makes sense for the people to play that they have some power ups, they have some. They, they have some energy and they, they're fighting exciting enemies and stuff like that, but it wouldn't make sense for Infernax. So that's where we like, is that just make it like a bit fast forward on that part. Now, I think it worked. Like people liked it, even though they could, like I want to say like 99% of people couldn't beat it. They, yeah. they still liked it. We gave out prizes. <clears throat> it was pretty rare. We'd have maybe two people, maybe three beat the demo a day at PAX. Yeah. Most people can make it to the end or like get pretty far. I'd say like half of people could get a, a sizable amount through the demo and almost everybody who lost. The, the reason we knew we were on to something with it was when people died, they were like, I could have done that. No one was mm. like, this game sucks, right? They, <laughs> they definitely felt like they could have probably done a little better. And that's when we knew like, oh, okay, like there's, you know, people are going to like this. And also showing it at PAX helped because like one of the things is when you're making a game based on these two games, uh, it's definitely going to appeal to us, a, you know, a studio of people mostly in their 30s. Uh, but is it going to appeal to anybody younger than that? And we had enough people come of like, you know, all the age groups that go to PAX where like I, my favorite story is there was uh, at pa uh, PAX South, which is like RIP PAX South, one of the best PAXs. Um, we had this kid come day one and play. You know, I think it was him and his dad, but he came day one and he's tried like three or four times and just couldn't beat the demo. 
And so we were talking about it after the show and I was like, I really hope that like that kid had a good time. Right. Yeah. yeah. But day, day two, first person at the booth doors open kids there. Oh, right. Wow. Like he was like, at nice. booth, like yeah. immediately. And he was like, I'm going to do it. And he tried like a couple of more times and he still didn't. Oh. <laughs> and, and then he came back the third day though. And he did beat the demo. Hey, right. Nice. And he was like, Oh yeah. And so the fact that, you know, and that wasn't the only time we, most people would come and win or lose. I'd say it was pretty often anyone who played for a sizable amount of time came back and dragged a friend. Like, oh, I brought my friend to play your demo. And they'd sit him down and then watch them play, mm-hmm. right? So they could, like, judge their friends. It was great. <laughs> so uh, I was going to ask you, with that adjustment to, 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 to the, the, the demos that you were showing, did that feedback help influence the game at all? Like, you know, seeing people... You know, changing all the you know the XP and gains and stuff like that, and and people sure. still having difficulty getting through. Did that change? Did that influence the the final product of the game at all? The the final game's harder. Okay, <laughs> all hard. right. <laughs> Steven, I think what you're driving at is that it it's not a, a clean room playtest environment. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's 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 the we, that's one of the gospels we preach on this show is okay. playtesting. Mm-hmm. But it seems like that's not, that you that was not something that you had the ability to do because the the demo needed to serve a exactly. different part purpose. of it. Also, is that the creative director Etienne himself doesn't really prefers not to like go to shows and stuff. Like he's not really the mm-hmm. kind of person who enjoys that stuff. Yeah. And so. All of our player feedback from shows was a telephone game from Mike and I to him, oh, who doesn't go to sure. shows and doesn't like to interact with players. And so right. he had like a really singular vision for the game. And a lot of stuff that we, you know, brought up as like feedback from the shows or things that people like did make it into the game. Absolutely. Because yeah. yeah. Simon came to some shows like and Etienne listened to what we were saying, but he had like a really singular idea for the game. And so the thing that we included because a lot of our playtests, other than that demo, really were us and friends. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it was it was fairly internal because again, we all had like a pretty strong vision of what we were trying to make. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and also we've played the games that we're inspired by a lot, you right, know. Right. Um, but you know, we we got real into like really specific tweaks that you in it. I'm curious whether a clean playtest might have ruined Infernax in this case. Oh because mm-hmm. like you said that that imperfection of like keeping elements of the story just because we could and like berserk studio doesn't do what we do super well under really tight constraints like simon being really good at coding is because he codes kind of the way he does and like etienne's creative direction is very specific in the way that he does it but like it's kind of hard to argue with the end result that a lot of people enjoyed the game right yeah like, yeah, yeah. yeah him and yeah. Yeah. yeah even if we we mostly don't really see eye to eye to a lot of these things because we're like we're people focused like hunter and i we go to shows we see people getting frustrated and stuff like that and we keep trying to have the game more accessible to people and more I want to say accessible because it's not the same that thing would, as we all agree playable. on trying to make it accessible, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but uh, the thing is that we cannot argue with results. That's yeah. that's the yeah, most frustrating yeah. part is that we we're sure that we're right, but Etienne has been putting up result and we cannot really argue with that. Like his his design has been like very we he did do some concessions for a lot of things, but mm-hmm. the main design of being hard, being cryptic, it's all there and people like it. Like I was talking to somebody on Twitter, like I want to say two days ago, that he was getting very frustrated about some platforming, and he was just he was missing a hint that he was just he was not supposed to be platforming at all. And the moment I pointed it out, he felt dumb and he just like 
God damn it. I'm an idiot. Sorry. That's <laughs> my I, bad. When Relatable I started, experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I started doing the writing, like Etienne and I had like a pretty long meeting, right? Because so what happened is I did my edits, right? My, my just my gra- grammatical and idiom edits, just a quick pass. Mm-hmm. And I sent them to him and he didn't like a lot of them and they seemed like really inoffensive edits. So yeah. I was like, oh, hold on. I didn't even really, I just <laughs> fixed stuff. Hold on. Like, so we, we need to talk. And so we had a pretty long meeting where I asked him a lot of questions about like, what, what's your goal here? Right? Like, why, what do you like? And I, you know, I was like, tell me what metal bands you like for starters, which was important to me to know. <laughs> and so we talked about music for a pretty long time. Cause we're both metal heads, but very different metal heads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was like, I know the game's inspired by like Zelda 2 and Castlevania 2, and I've played both of those a lot. And I've played, you know, Fexanadu, and I've played a bunch, you, you name the, you know, side scrolling RPG NES game, I've played it. Um, but I, I had to get into his mind, right? Because there mm-hmm. were certain choices he wanted to make that I was like, I don't understand. So, like, there is, for instance, about, uh, I'm going to say, an average player two, two hours into the game, two and a half hours. If you don't talk to NPCs, you will not know what to do. And if you do talk to NPCs and you don't think about it, you also won't know what to do. And I was like, are we sure that we want to give them this moderately cryptic hint and that's it? Hard stop? Like, there's no other way to progress? And he's like, yes. And he explained the logic behind that as he's like, one of my favorite things about older Elder Scrolls games is that they didn't have a quest tracker. And I was like, you're insane. That's a crazy thing that you just said. (laughs) But like that's, he was like, I loved that there were things where you had to like open the book, read the book and it didn't drop, you know, that thing you just read anywhere. You just had to know that or like write it down or something. He's like, I want to preserve that in the game. This game is not going to, hold your hand if you don't read like npc dialogue that's your problem not my problem <laughs> like that, that we put them there for you in locations that make moderate amounts of sense and you know that that point has people have been mad about it right people have been like mm-hmm. oh, how was i supposed to know mm-hmm. but then and every single thread like a million people show up and explain what they can do or whatever like the community has very much like they explain stuff to each other, right? Like one of the five endings is pretty hard to achieve. It requires a pretty tight needle thread on the morality required. Mm. And people went into the game code and isolated the morality uh, point values of every single decision that you can make. And then they made a flow chart for each other. And like, (laughs) that's what he wanted because people did beat it without that, right? Plenty of people did, but it is very hard. And so, you know, the idea that like some of the stuff in the game, you have to have someone bring their like spiral notebook to the school, like playground and show you how to do it. Right. Yeah, I was, gonna, that I was just going to mention that design. that does feel very much like uh, my friend has a Nintendo power. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so that, 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 um, that meta element between players is something that yeah. uh, I think a lot of people, they, when they get stuck, they look up things on game facts or whatever, but like it, it a, a game like this, encourages more direct person to person communication in in a in a modern era that. which is yeah. something that's hard to do. So I think that's the Weirdly the Steam forums have yeah. been positive for the most part right. which is shocking to me <laughs> as someone who's moderated Steam forums yeah. but it's been a lot of people asking like those questions and then a bunch of people showing up and answering right? Like there of course yeah. there's criticisms of the game hmm. but far outweighed by people being like how do I do this thing? And then 20 people just piling in and telling them it's great. It's awesome. It's been really fun. That meta interaction was part of the original vision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Etienne very so much wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was like, people will do it. And I was like, what if they don't? Like Mike was saying, we're very people focused. And I'm like, what if they don't? And he's like, they will. 
Like, right, okay. right, right. <laughs> well, it almost sounds like it, if they didn't, then so be it. Is, is kind of what we're, I'm hearing. Right, that, oh, yeah. That yeah. was absolutely where he was mm-hmm. coming yeah. from. And yes. I think that's when, when, when game developers, when they do start playtesting, when they do start coming to the altar of playtesting. Um, the altar. The, yeah. <laughs> it, it, you, you really want to be really data-driven. Yeah. And I think that that's, that mm-hmm. is, I think that's something game developers do need to learn. But they need the other lesson, too, which is that it's still their game. Right. And so they can't, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, they, you have to decide, like, okay, this player gave me this feedback. What am I going to do with it? Right, yeah. and, and I think that that's. Uh, it sounds like you had a good balance. <laughs> you had enough. You had enough yeah. people on one side saying you do need to think about this feedback, but then you had that strong vision to say like I will. I'll mold it within the confines of my vision so that it doesn't just become yeah. a data driven product. Right. We had definitely avoided design by committee by the strength of Etienne's convictions yeah. for sure. <laughs> like. <laughs> <it> was... <laughs> I mean, and now the game is out in a success. You can be all happy, all smiles about it, right? <laughs> Even well, if it was I mean, like Mike was saying, way. right? Like I told him after the game came out, I was like, "We didn't always agree on everything, but I guess generally you win." Like, fair <laughs> enough, right? Like, <laughs> Hi, Dale. Hi, Steven. <laughs> what have you been up to recently? Well, I've been working a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would answer that. <laughs> I mean, it takes up most of my day. Uh, also, naps. Yes. Naps are very good. Naps are great. You've been hanging out with cats recently. Yes, yep. step one more. Yep. Step cats. Oh, wait, Nice Games Club. And then cats? No, it's probably cats first and then Nice Games Club. <laughs> Will you three get to the point? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dale, you handle our uh, Twitter. So the point is, I do stuff for Nice Games Club, which is I retweet things that other people have tweeted, creating a lovely curated list of almost only positive things and some things about cats. A lot of things about cats. Almost only positive? That's a very good hedge you've just made. (laughs) Yes, it is. Occasionally, there are negative things in there, Mm -hmm. and sometimes... And a lot of times there's things about cats, which are almost always positive. Right. The negative things and cats are sometimes you have to acquiesce to the real world. <laughs> that, um, that cats are Which include those two things. Yeah. Jerks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, where, where can people uh, find us on Twitter, Dale? We're on Twitter at Nice Games Club. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you should know this. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but it's very hard to say Nice Games Club without saying NiceGames.club. Yeah, slash we... feedback. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't this isn't that call to action. Go to at Nice Games Club on Twitter and uh, see all the cats that Dale has tweeted about. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, okay, so so y'all, you know, you showed the game off at PAX. Um you showed it off you demoed the game off at, at, at plenty of different avenues and things. I'm I'm curious what other things you did to promote the game. Um because it's I mean, thankfully, it sounds like the game is has been very successful. Um and I, I'm curious how you managed to get people to hear about the game. Yeah, the, the hype cycle machine. <laughs> Tell us how it works. Yes, please. <laughs> I haven't figured it out. Who I would was? like to know. <laughs> Yeah. The first thing is, don't do part of what we did, is what I will tell yeah, you. Yeah, please, please. Like, learn uh, from our mistakes. Part of it was, I mean, uh, so Just Shapes and Beats had a really weird hype cycle, too. It was a, you know, successful game and stuff. But Mike was promo. So if anyone ever tells you, right, like, try and have as, not short of a promo cycle, but just, you know, like, condensed, right? Because if you promo a game for four years at PAX, it's much harder to get press and excitement at the end, right? You can't, right. it's... You know, like the messenger kind of came out of nowhere, right? They came out of nowhere six months before launch, promoted really hard, launched very successfully. That's a pretty good window for a lot of indies, right? Like that's what I do for a living is PR and marketing. And I always tell them, if you don't have a plan for a year of marketing, don't do it. Because <laughs> it's not going to, you're going to run out of content. You're going to run out of steam. Especially if you're doing it yourself, you're going to eat into dev time. Yeah. yeah, It's, you know, like if you can go real hard for a shorter period of time, you know, community build as long as you want, but don't do your big announcements and stuff unless you can really keep up that momentum always increasing until game launch. Mm -hmm. And if you can't be honest with yourself, if you can't do that, I don't suggest it for most people because it's harder than you think. Like for, for just shapes and beats though, they promoted it for four years and the game came out successfully. So like, don't, it doesn't work. Don't do that. It doesn't like, don't do what we did. Please don't. Uh, Because one of the things with shapes and beats that everybody talked about it when we first showed it in 2015 and then when we we kept showing, kept showing, kept showing, we got IGNs, we got PC gamers, we got Destructoid, we got all the big articles. And then the moment we launched, we didn't get anything. So we were like mm-hmm. devastated because we were like, mm-hmm. well, are people going to know about our game? Because we, we came out with, we had promotion with Nintendo, we had promotion with the PlayStation, we had promotion with Steam, but we couldn't breach that media bar- barrier because they you covered still... us already in their yeah. minds right which exactly. is a big problem with getting early promo too right with er- like you know I'm, i have friends who are working on a game and unfortunately they made a big announcement when it went into early access mm-hmm. which means that i you know come hell or high water trying to get pressed to re-review it later is hard yeah. almost impossible yeah. in a lot of right, cases because right. they view it as out right they already did mm-hmm. your review your game's mm-hmm. out yeah what's the story right it's and it's hard for a developer to say like well the story is that it's done and that's really exciting but that doesn't that's not an interesting story to journalists right it doesn't get clicks for the media yeah Yeah. unless like it was a huge hit when they first did the first promo they're not gonna be be covering it again so Mm -hmm. so for infernax the way it differs is uh we knew that we were thinking about working with the pub. This is the first game Berserks had like published, published, right? Because before yeah. that we did like Flash Games licensing, but we've been independent since almost founding. Um, so we knew that we wanted to maybe 
uh, go with a publisher, partially for marketing support, right? Because like mm-hmm. the two of us were already doing so much, and we knew that this game could probably use it, but also for help with, because again, Mike would have been responsible like he was for other stuff with like doing the ins and outs of the biz dev of going on console because we launched on every console. Mm-hmm. And so we, since we knew that, we didn't promo it really hard until we'd locked that down other than at shows, right? Like as a studio, we'd talk about it a little bit. And, you know, the fact that Just Shapes and Beats was really successful means that people knew who we were. So that was useful. But we didn't really like run the Twitter or do any of that stuff until we'd locked in who we were going to be working with as a publisher, which is why I say don't do what we did because... We got incredibly lucky that it all worked out. But as a marketer, I would tell you, don't do that, right? Don't show it shows and not have a social presence you're updating and stuff. That doesn't Uh, work. It's not a good idea. Um, It panned out in the end for us. But a lot of the promo cycle honestly was kind of like what I was talking about, which is we didn't really promote the game very much. A lot of people didn't know it was happening until we you know were locked in because we worked with arcade crew who are a you know a, a subset of dot mu and the you know the way that that partnership even really got started was that first demo at pax uh west 2019 the dot mu guys kept rolling by and grabbing their friends and having them play it and stuff and so like it took a really long time to nail down working together and ultimately we ended up with arcade crew which is their you know inset label that they use for like i think the well that's where the um, are. blazing yeah, yeah. Well, I'm Blazing Chrome, right? Which is basically also a love letter to an older retro game in like a similar style. So that was a really good fit. But until we knew we were doing that, we didn't really promo the game really hard because we knew we might have to like pivot away from anything we were going to do ourselves because we're incredibly chaotic in the way that we like to market stuff that's just ours. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't want to have a publisher come in and make us just change it. We decided we'd rather just start from scratch once we knew what the plan there was. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that promo ended up being, you know, the publisher, we were really lucky uh, that because the only, they hired a PR firm to help us do it. And since we normally do PR, that was really weird for me to work on a game that I didn't <laughs> do PR on. But we were lucky that they hired um, Tinsley, who does a lot of the work for Devolver and her and her team are like really talented. They did a great job with them, with their PR and marketing support for this. That's a big part of it is, you know, obviously that's outside of the grasp of like a lot of indie devs, right? Because I mean, I know a lot of people and I give advice all the time for free to like smaller indie devs because like you don't have to do that, right? But you, it does help to have a a plan and a lot of people kind of go at it with like no plan. You don't yeah. have to have a huge budget, but you, the less budget you have, the more work you have to do and the right. more plan you need to have. Yeah, like... So we were lucky in this case that we were given the resources to kind of have to do a little bit less of the grunt work on it. You know, Mike and I did a lot of podcasts to talk about the game and stuff, but the the nitty gritty of sending out like the press emails and stuff were actually handled for us this time, which was wild. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And it's also like you have somebody else like doing the reminders and stuff like that, which was like so, so good. It was two lines of defense because they'd remind me and then I'd remind Mike and then it was great. We're <laughs> yeah, like, please remind me to do things. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm an old man. I forget. <laughs> but yeah, so that's a big part of it is the hype cycle for it was kind of a weighed towards the end. And that was part intentional too, right? Because we waited so long that the original hype, whatever, there wasn't that much originally for it. But what there was, right? Essentially, it was like launching the game for the first time again with that yeah. much quiet timing. And also, like one of the weird things that it was the first—I mean, it's the first uh, for everyone—but the entire pandemic, like doing the the marketing during a pandemic without shows, without Ugh, with so much noise worse. online, it was so confusing for us. Like, not, not how to do mention, we do this? We <laughs> we picked. 
So an interest, this is a good marketing tidbit postmortem for y'all too, which is we picked the date a little bit as a joke, but also because it was inside of the area that we were supposed to kind of land in with our publisher. And we had to pick it forever ago, right? Because we have uh, physical copies coming out through both Signature Edition and Limited Run. We had a publishing deal. We are on Game Pass. you know. So there was a bunch of stuff that had to be locked in way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So we locked in Va- Valentine's Day for our incredibly gory pixelated platforming game. <laughs> and then a bunch of delays meant that we were launching in the same month as Elden Ring and Horizon, uh, Horizon <laughs> and Mina the Hollower got announced. And right. there's like a list of like 10 things that happened unplanned all within yeah. like the week that we were going to launch and we we're like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Guess the game is cursed, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, plus it there was that Kirby out, demo. But... Right? Oh yeah. The Kirby demo. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me for not playing the game as much as I should have. I was busy looking at Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> so those platform deals, the uh, game pass um, uh, specifically, um, uh, was that something that that you guys found easier to make happen because of the work you had done with just shapes and beats making relationships, or was that something that the arcade crew helped out um, getting those kinds of like ecosystem synergies? Uh, well, that was that was actually done before we got the partnership with Arcade Crew because mm-hmm. we had been working with a toward a Game Pass deal with Shapes and Beats for three years because we we wanted to be on Xbox, but we didn't have the infrastructure to do it. So because in the back end, we're not out on Xbox yet. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to have some like financial incentive to actually do it because it's an online game. So we we would have needed like some help to do it or it would have been out of pocket that we're not sure that we're going to be making back. So we've been working for that Game Pass deal for like four years and it didn't pan out really. But doing that relationship with Game Pass ended up doing, well, maybe if we can do this, we could probably do your next game, which was kind of cool and we really like so do you want to be with us so yeah so like that basically that four-year negotiation to be on x uh to be on gay pass for jason base actually gave us the deal with infinix it's interesting yes sort of building up reputation and relationships is is something yeah. you can't just it's like, not something you can just start doing you can't check it off a list or whatever it's not uh, you have to actually take the time to do try that. i guess yeah right? yeah because <laughs> yeah. in the end you're, you're talking to humans and like humans like remember stuff and you're yeah. you're keeping in conversation with them and they will at some point it, they don't again like you say they don't have a checklist on the side they just they just, well you have a project let's let's do something with something else and things like that because they want to do the best for their platform as well so like having a new title is probably more enticing to them than an older one right, mm-hmm. right. i think a big takeaway for indie devs too from stuff like that right is when we're talking about this stuff that doesn't always get discussed is mm-hmm. Things like that take a lot longer than most people think mm-hmm. too, right? Like you hear people trying to go after like a Game Pass deal in the last, again, like six months of working on their game when they think, oh, that's part of my promo cycle, not realizing like, no, you really got to start kind of talking to them and plan for making like a playable vertical slice way, way earlier than you think because like who knows, right? Who knows right. what their schedules look like if you want a chance for it, right? You yeah. you definitely can't just come at them towards the end of dev and be like, by the way, I've got a game. It's almost done. <laughs> in in some ways, that's almost bad because I know people who've done that and they often will be a little more reticent not having been talked to like during the dev cycle, right? Because right. they don't know how you work. They don't know how reliable you'll be for updates because they don't know how you work at all. Yeah. Was that part of the uh, release date uh, conversation? Um because Game Pass has its own schedule of releases that they yeah. want to 
you know they want they want to spread out right or was or is that just sort of yeah. like a, a a consideration or was it a, a big factor uh, they just give us a couple of black monsters that mm-hmm. don't launch in those dates and yeah. like for the rest you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. so that for that they were like they were super nice to work with for that yeah we didn't really have a like you need to be done by may 31st or you can't launch mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it was like mm-hmm. they would they would loop back to us like every three months like when you think you're going to be able to launch all right so we'll we'll talk about more like in three months like let's see like when what the schedule looked like back then and and then we finally locked the date Um, it was august right we we worked for like a year on the schedule and then august we locked the date somewhere around august maybe early september yeah Yeah, because also like they don't want you to lock in too fast and then you're not ready for it yeah yeah, that would make sure. sense because they, they need to like plan stuff. They do their own scheduling. They do their own marketing as well. So they, mm-hmm. they want to make sure that when you say you're in, you're in. And also you have to integrate sometimes some stuff that you wouldn't normally just for, you know, because we're on Game Pass for PC too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, integrate their cloud safe system. It's like a whole other, you know, like there's more stuff that gets added just yeah. for being on there. Right, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I have that experience too. <laughs> it, 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 it takes longer than you expect. Mm-hmm. Every time. Always, yeah. If there's something that you should all remember is that it always takes longer. Yep. Always. Yes. <laughs> no matter what you do, it's always going to be longer. True. Right, right. <laughs> Start planning for that third 90% of the work, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the game is out, so we can look back now. And yeah. so okay. uh, broadly, what what works about the game? Like what, what did you think uh, was the biggest success born out of your process, born out of the, the, the choices you made? What is the, the strongest parts of the game? I think that the fact that Etienne has such a crisp vision of what we, he wanted, mm-hmm. he knew it was going to be a niche game, but that niche game for whoever it's for, it's like we made the game just for them. Mm-hmm. So everybody that actually plays the game that they know like right from the get go, what it's going to be. And if that's their kind of game, the effing love it. Like yeah. they're super, like uh, they're very involved with the the community. They they fail, but they like failing because they know, like, oh, that's my bad. That's my bad. It's it's always like the game is made for those people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that definitely is a I wouldn't say surprising end result, but the amount of love, like really, really vocal love, the game has gotten really did show that kind of the idea that that Tien felt very strongly about, right? Which is that it's not meant to be inaccessible. Like that's something we can talk about that we wanted as many people to be able to play it as they could. Right. But that it wasn't going to be a game that was going to try and win you over. Right. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the game that it is. And if you like that, you'll really, really like it because it's very much that game. But if you don't like that type of game, I won't even really recommend you try it because it is very much just that game, right? If you don't like side-scrolling platformers inspired by games from like the 90s and 80s, it's not for you and that's okay, right? But it very much is not adapted to make your taste uh, sync with it. It just is. It just exists, you know, which is kind of like the answer we always gave to like, well, how'd you differentiate yourself in the market? It's like, well, one, we didn't right because all these games already existed but our game was already based on these games it was already (laughs) this game it just became more of itself as time went on and seeing that pay off with with people just feeling really passionate about it like i i remember the conversation at the end and i had about those five branching paths because the important thing is 
there's story behind each of them, right? There, you don't really technically see everything unless you beat the game all of those times and being like, are you sure anyone's going to do that, man? Like, I don't do that, right? Generally, like, I can't be bothered to play a game that many times in a row. It's a short game, so that helps. But, yeah. you know, we're still talking about a 20, 30 plus hour investment here from some people to try and beat all those endings. And how many people, and even in reviews, a lot of reviewers were like, yeah, once I'm done writing this, I'm actually going to go back and play again because I'm on, like, my third playthrough and I need to finish. Huh. And that just blew all our minds that even in the critical reception, people were like, yeah, I I died a million times and I just can't stop. And we're like, wow, that's <laughs> it worked. Like, yeah, that's definitely probably the biggest thing about the game that worked was it it just worked, you know? We didn't know too. Mike and I had conversations where we were like, it's such a niche game, it's meant for such a specific person. If enough of those people don't really exist, uh, maybe we're just going to be like a seven out of 10, right? Which would suck, but like fair enough. Cause it's a very specific, then it came out and got good reviews and we we're like, wow, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Cause one of the things that we always try to make the games as like broad as we can, cause we, like you were saying, like shapes and base, we try to make it for everyone and mm-hmm. every single game. We, we, we keep having this idea of our mind that more people that want to play your game is better. But then you realize that, well, actually, the more people that try your game that actually they were told that would, they would like it and they don't, that that hurts the game the, in the past. Because if you're trying to just please everyone, you're pleasing nobody. Yeah. So try to focus yeah. on something and make sure that those people love it and they do. Yeah. And it sounds like the people who who maybe won't love it as much, maybe even including some reviewers, recognize mm-hmm. that early enough to be fair about it about their reaction yeah. or how they talk about the game to others. So that was probably, so maybe there aren't, maybe there really were, isn't as many people uh, out there as you'd hoped, but enough people understood it and they would give it a chance anyway, because they knew what they were getting in, what they were getting into because it had such a strong vision. I'd say the player numbers are probably north of my conservative expectations, right? Like mm-hmm. I, we've done better than I was thinking we might, if we didn't do great. But, you know, like even like you're saying, our most negative review that I remember reading from like a an actual review site in that review, the reviewer acknowledged that it was not a game for him and that there are a lot of people who will really like it, but he does not. And yeah. I was like, fair enough. Seven. And he gave us like a seven out of 10. Right? right. And I was like, you know what? Fair enough. Right. Like yeah. he was like, this is not my kind of game. Part of what, you know, a criticism that came from some of the more negative ended reviews where they said that we didn't do enough to like change it. And it was like, well, we weren't trying to, right? right. Like it wasn't, we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were making a new, very nice version of wheel, like yeah, wheel yeah. 2.0, not, not a new <laughs> wheel. And so if you don't like that, again, you're going to be mm-hmm. underwhelmed. Like, fair enough. Like we get, when people were like, how come there aren't uh, a bunch of different equipable weapons? You know, like, I feel like you should have like 10 or 15 different weapons. And then in that thread, a bunch of people showing up and be like, have you played any S games? Like that's <laughs> not really a thing. Yeah. That's not how it works. They're not, it's not a Metroidvania. Mm-hmm. Like, that's interesting because I think you might have been um, biased by a lot of the discussion about Shovel Knight, which was the, those developers talked a lot about how they did that, where they were like they wanted the feel of the old NES games, but they did they made the choice to make it more modern, and that was the right choice for that mm-hmm. game. But I wonder how much mm-hmm. of the the gaming audience and, and and reviewers were thinking, oh, that's the way to do it. So, some for sure. How you got uh, a ding by that a little bit, but luckily the game was confident enough. <laughs> that it didn't have to didn't have to argue very far before people realized what it was trying to do. Yeah. 
We definitely modernized the really bad pain points that literally no one could justify, right? Like, (laughs) um, I like Castlevania, but the air control in those games in the first two is, I know that's part of its design, but Mm -hmm. I find it unfun generally, right? It's not fun to me now as an adult with mod, like, I don't have as much time. I don't want to perfect my jump so I don't die. And so, like, you've got a lot of air control in the game or, like, the hitbox on your weapons just, like, ever so slightly generous. You know, like, there's a lot of coyote time, for instance. Those Mm -hmm. are all things we put in that are, like, much more forgiving than an NES game. But the difficulty is still moderately high. And, you know, people complained about things that are uh, distinctly NES about the design that, like, we're never going to change. Like, people (laughs) complaining about uh, one-hit death water pits. And you're like, dude... (laughs) Of course you die. Yeah. What are you talking about? What are you gonna like? How take... are you gonna swim with a hundred pound wear of armor on yourself? Yeah, like, yeah. Every single one of them was like, "Well, you should die instead of dying. You should take you know one or two hit points of damage and respawn at the start of the screen." And it's like, "Sorry, man, this is not Celeste, right? This right. is mm-hmm. this isn't a game inspired by NES. It's there. There is a mode for people who want an easier version of the game, and it doesn't change the difficulty of enemies at all. So if you beat it in that mode." you beat the game you killed the same people right it had some things that made that easier but like you beat the game we didn't make the game easier there's some accessibility codes that do make certain parts of it easier but the the casual mode is really just there for like i play in casual mode that's fine right like mm-hmm. it's there for people who don't want to play in hardcore mode like in the classic <laughs> mode where you die and lose all progress not everyone has the time or the inclination to do that and like that's fine. We don't judge the unlock the achievements in either mode. If there's only one achievement for hardcore mode, right? Like, and it's, it's important to like find that middle ground between like, it's not a totally modernized game, but we definitely didn't keep things that are intentionally really bad just because. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you made a lot of the, you, you honored a lot of the design choices, but you didn't, you didn't copy it for its own sake. Right. No. Yeah. So, okay, so now it's time to put your critical hat on after defending the game just now from the, the, the minor <laughs> criticism it did receive. What what went wrong? What would you do differently either as the production of the game or in its final form? What about the game would you uh, didn't, didn't work, would you say? That's hard. I, I can think of one, and it's one we're actually working on right now, and mm-hmm. it's not really, it's that, and it was one where our hands weren't tied, but our options were a lot more limited than I think any of us would have liked, which is that, so the game has a cheat code system built into it, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of things. One, I wish we had kind of had more time to go even further with it. We did a lot of cheat codes, but there are so many more cheat codes that like I wanted <laughs> to add to the game Yeah, that would have added production time we didn't have towards the end. So yeah, like, sure. of course, hopefully if we get to make more at some point, those are things we can always discuss, but for the launch version of the game, as we're talking about, I would have loved to have more prod time for things like that, like even more Easter eggs, even more stuff like that. And the other one is that because of it, how it was built, adding in accessibility options for launch, we were kind of limited to some degree. So we added in what we were able to at the time, because again, we wanted it to be. So what we were able to add in, for instance, is like uh, infinite jumps. So if you turn that on, you can just infinitely jump which helps quite a bit with some of the platforming sections because you just literally can just keep double jumping forever and invincibility so that you can if you find yourself like just slamming your head against a section because there are parts that get pretty hairy you can turn those on if you want to right and Mm -hmm. they don't even disable achievements at all you can still get everything with those on because that would be uncool if you couldn't but 
having the ability to do even more would have been good. Like when we reduced screen shake because of, we weren't able to take like every instance of screen shake out. And when we reduced the photosensitive mode, we weren't able to take every single moment of photosensitivity out. We just were able to reduce them quite a bit. We're talking about how we can maybe do more on that front, but mm-hmm. like it would have been nice. Like if, if we could have had more time in the game, it could have been designed differently. Yeah. would have been nice to launch with all that stuff. 100% the way we would have wanted it. Yeah, who could have built the game from the ground up with that in mind? But again, yeah. that was 10 years ago. There was no accessibility <laughs> options in Flash games. Like, all you had yeah. to were, like, make sure is that people didn't get seizure from looking at your game. So that that was really built in this way. But having the knowledge that this is now a thing is probably going to help for the rest of the, for the, the future of the games that we make at Berserk, that we're going to be building in, building that from the ground up. As soon as we start doing the engine, we're going to have something that's in place to make sure that we don't basically just uh, like reverse engineer our own game to make sure that things work in the end. Yeah. Well, that's mine. What's yours, Mike? What was God your, damn what it. Was... <laughs> <laughs> Thought you can get away without having that uh, one, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing, one of the problems on that, looking back, we had too many, like we had the too many cook uh, syndrome on the, on the mm-hmm. game for the longest time. So we didn't have a, a focused point like we didn't understand that it was Etienne's game like for the longest time we tried to make it like our own game like the entire studio but there was a singular vision that we needed to have and that's a lesson that's that's been learned now that you cannot please everyone and from that you cannot please everyone within the the studio even so yeah. have a single like having a singular vision on it at the end really helped but at first it was like very hard to just remember like oh well this is my opinion. That opinion do matter, but it's not. It's not the clear cut at the end. Like it's mm-hmm. it's okay that I hate something about a game, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that. Well, I mean, like you know, obviously removing a lot of the humor, right? In the end, ended up being the right choice, but it was incredibly painful for both of us as we were doing it because we mm-hmm. would like write a lot of stuff like that. Even we thought might work with the tone of the game even still, right? And having those just like chopped out is like, man, like what is the goal here? And we got there, but it was not it was not easy to to land on the tone that the game shipped with, right? Yeah. There was a lot there's like a game's worth of dialogue on the cutting room floor for sure. Oh at least. Like maybe two games. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. Um okay, so final question then is and you touched on it a little bit already, the things that you learned from this process that you'll take into your next game? What are the biggest things that you learned that you didn't know on previous titles? Well, it's been 10 years. So we, we've we learned not only from Infernax, but we learned from all the other games that we've made. Yeah. And then those games impacted Infernax as well. But mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things that we need to start trusting ourselves more because we, we know a lot more than mm-hmm. we think we do. Like we've been, a, we've been in the industry for 12 years. That doesn't really feel like it, but we know a lot more than we think. And like, just keep second guessing ourselves is probably like we can trust ourselves a bit more on that. Mm-hmm. I think my my personal takeaway was, uh, so I play bass right in bands when I play, and good good game writing kind of feels like playing bass in that it's really really important. And some people really really like it. Often those people also play bass, but <laughs> if you do it really poorly, people notice. Yeah. But if you do it pretty well. Most people won't notice it. It just is part of the whole, right? Yeah. Like the, the game is just enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. 
in a band, I used to always have a head to head with a guitarist about he wanted me to take bass solos. And I used to always say the only people who like bass solos are bassists. And that's not entirely <laughs> true, but I do believe that a lot. Yeah. I'm like, I, even as a bass player, I don't love when the band drops out and he just starts like going ham for 45 <laughs> seconds in the middle of a song. And I think that it's important to remember that with game writing too, right? Where like everyone wants to write these ridiculous soliloquies or jokes or whatever, but just the fact that it hangs together is really, really important. Like just holding the beat down for the whole game consistently is really a win. Yeah, It's very foundational. It's a fantastic metaphor. I love that. I do like a good bass solo. I will say that. (laughs) I mean, I've seen Victor. That's the thing is at a certain level, you go see Victor Wooten to see Victor Wooten play bass because he's an amazing bass player, right? Right. I guess it just, I always played in punk bands, I guess. So that's where my thing comes from, where you're a three piece, which means if the bass drops out to do a solo, now it's just drums and guitar. You you lost a bunch of the low end for something that feels kind of self-indulgent in a two minute song. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Not everyone is less capable, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us and helping us, uh, uh, you know, uh, road test this new format for the show. Yeah. Um, before we uh, let you out of the clubhouse, we want to give you the opportunity to, like, hype the game, pitch it. Where can people get it? Why should they if they haven't decided to already? Obviously, we're out on all the platforms you can be out on, uh, I think, other than maybe Ouya, if we count that one still. No, uh, we're on... <laughs> we're on... <laughs> All of the Xboxes, your PlayStation's four, which means also five de facto. Mm -hmm. Um, We're out on Switch. You can get us on Steam. uh, And then also we're on Game Pass. So if you have Game Pass, technically you got us. Um, For Xbox and PC, which is great. Right. And if you and it's so fun when people are like, oh, I w- wish we'd support you by doing that. That's okay. Just play the game. Please play our game. Um, <laughs> if you want to follow us on social media, the game's mostly active on Twitter, uh, which is at Infernax, I-N-F-E-R-N-A-X. Uh, the studio is at Berserk Studio, but it's B-E-R-Z-E-R-K Studio on Twitter. Um, and then also you could, we have a website. You could, I guess, follow us on Facebook. If you do that still, uh, we have a studio discord, which is the Berserk studio discord. You're welcome to join. There's a fairly active community on there for all of our games. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's mostly where the game can be found. You know, we're always working on other projects, but, uh, great. And then handles for each of you. So for me, I'm mostly on Twitter because I'm at Mike Ducarm suck. That's my name suck without the S at the end, because <laughs> Twitter, like, limitations of characters. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter because I make games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, at, at Bond Hunter Bond, B-O-N-D-H-U-N-T-E-R-B-O-N-D. Yeah, that's it. I guess you could mail me a letter, but I'd have to give you my address. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we can convince Hunter to give, give us his uh, P.O. box, we'll put that in the show notes. But otherwise, all of this will be Perfect. in the show notes as well. Thanks again, guys. That's our show. For show notes and links from today's conversation, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter, where everybody is, at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and Screenshot Saturday. We like hearing from you, so please tweet back or email us, contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. And if you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegamesclub slash discord and say hello. So, until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.